Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Stanford Biggers. His work is on view in cosmic rhythm vibrations at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. The exhibition, substantially but not entirely drawn from the Nasher's collection, considers artworks that engage visual and musical rhythm. It was curated by the Nasher's Trevor Schoonmaker and will be on view through March 1st. Then this spring, the Bronx Museum of Art will originate a major survey of Biggers' work with quilts titled Sanford Biggers Code Switch. Created by Antonio Sergio Bessa and Andrea Anderson, the exhibition will feature around 80 of the quilt-based works that Biggers has made between 2009 and 2019. From the Bronx, it will travel to New Orleans and Los Angeles. The excellent forthcoming catalog, I got a sneak peek, will be published by the Bronx Museum of the Arts in association with Yale University Press. You can pre-order it on Amazon for $45. On the second segment, Michelle Angela Ortiz. But first, Sanford Biggers, after the break. In Recording Artists, a new Getty podcast series, art historian Helen Molesworth explores the lives and work of six women artists. Alice Neal, Lee Krasner, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Yoko Ono, and Ava Hesse. In the episode focused on Ava Hesse, Molesworth is joined by artist Mary Weatherford and art historian Darby English. And in a rare 1970 recording made shortly before her death, Hesse discusses the trajectory of her practice, her distinctive materials, and the meaning of art and life. Binge the entire series now at getty.edu slash recordingartists. His art captured the zeitgeist of Impressionist-era society, fashion, and politics. So why isn't he as famous as Monet or Degas? See new scholarship revealed about 19th century art's best-kept secret in James Tiso, Fashion and Faith, on view now at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Navigate the winding path of Tiso's life as you explore the exhibition galleries, passing through his complicated friendship with Degas, a decade of expatriation in London, and a love affair with a tragic ending. Discover Tiso's spectacular world in James Tiso Fashion and Faith, on view now at the Legion of Honor Museum. Head to legionofhonor.org to plan your visit. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Art for a New Understanding, Native Voices, 1950s to Now, the first exhibition to chart the development of contemporary indigenous art in the United States and Canada. For generations, Native North American artists have exhibited work mostly outside of mainstream art institutions. Native Voices begins to remedy that division, presenting approximately 60 works of art in a wide variety of media by Native American artists from many nations and regions. The exhibition examines the practices and perspectives of the most influential Native artists and their important contributions to American art, thus reassessing the place of indigenous art within the art historical canon. On view August 29th through January 12th, 2020, at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash voices. And we're back. Sanford Biggers, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So with the quilt on view at the Nasher at Duke and with the Quilts Work survey coming up this spring, Let's start by talking a little bit about how you came to quilts and then segue into how they fit within your broader oeuvre. In 2009, a commission from the Hidden City Festival in Philadelphia, a commission for the Mother Bethel AME Church there, motivated you to investigate the Underground Railroad. There are lots of ways you might have done that. Why did the commission end up sending you toward quilts? 
Well, it was interesting. When I got to Philadelphia, I first started by going to the Masonic Temple. And I was, you know, at, as you probably know, it's one of the uh, more grand uh, Masonic temples in the U.S. And I went there looking in the various rooms, which were all themed after different regions, and looking at the stained glass. And initially, I was interested in trying to find, decode, or superimpose some degree of code into the stained glass windows, because I grew up, you know, learning stories about the Masons, and obviously Philadelphia has all of the sort of political history regarding the Masons and code and secret societies and so on. So that's where it began. But as I started doing site visits throughout Philadelphia and I got to the Mother Bethel Church, I was looking at the stained glass windows in the church as well, but they had an exhibition downstairs that contained a few antique quilts. And then as I went through a few other places through Philadelphia, I saw more quilts popping up. And as I started reading about them, I heard about this, you know, supposed history of them being used as signposts on the Underground Railroad. And that really started my imagination going. And I started to think of Harriet Tubman as basically an astronaut navigating the stars to find her way and other people's way to freedom up north. And that really started me thinking about doing what I consider to be a late stage collaboration with the original makers of antique quilts. So I started to collect some and do more research about antique quilts and then and to incorporate them into my work. So finally, the resulting piece at the Mother Bethel Church, rather than me doing anything with the stained glass windows, I actually borrowed several quilts and lined them up in the main hall of the church and right below the stained glass window. So there was actually a relationship between that sort of European male-dominated tradition of stained glass for the most part and this supposed tradition of women doing quilts. And I was really positing the pattern work in the quilts against the pattern work and the design of the stained glass. And on two or three of the quilts in that show, these were all borrowed at this point because I had no means of purchasing them, but somebody was very nice enough to let me borrow some. I started to safety pin small swatches of muslin that I silk screened with one, with a sort of like a logoic version of one of my installations, a piece that was called Lotus, which is a glass disc with um, which appears to have a lotus blossom depicted on it. But as you get closer to it, you realize that those uh, the petals of the lotus blossom are actually cross sections of slave ships. So I used that diagram as a silk screen on small swatches and attached those to the quilt. So I started to incorporate some code and some of my own imagery directly onto those quilts. And that started the series. Why did stained glass interest you? Is it something you ever went back to, as it were? <laughs> I did. You know, there was sort of the iconographic aspect of stained glass that initially got me into it. But beyond that, I started to strip down beyond the imagery and think about light. And I was really interested in creating basically a kaleidoscopic viewing space, utilizing the sun going through the different colors of the stained glass and creating patterns on the floor and the walls and so on. So uh, a few years later, I did a very large installation at Mass Mocha in, um, in Hall Number no. 5, which is, you know, as you know, it's larger than a football field. And I found that most people's inclination with that space was to really sort of close it down, to shut down the windows and try to make it more of a black box to minimize the scale of the room. I went with a different approach and I left the windows all open, but I started to put colored gels across several of the window panes. 
so that as the sun traversed, you know, through the sky and shot and shone through the windows, it was creating colored patterns that would move throughout the space throughout the day. So essentially, you would never experience the same installation twice because the sun, the clouds, all those elements would be in flux. So that was my way finally getting to stained glass. That piece uh, at Mass Mocha was in 2012, and it was called The Cartographer's Conundrum. I think we'll probably come back to it a little later on. Your interest in the Underground Railroad, which uh, at least partly somewhat sourced in the Mother Bethel AME, appears to have been a station on it, as it were. Your interest in the Underground Railroad fit what has been a career-long interest in the past and in making work that scrambles the line between the past and the present. And we'll talk more about that as we go on. But one of the things that you have done pretty consistently is start with a not new something, something old like a quilt or or an African, perhaps your Reuben sculpture, and then do something to it and present it as a, a, a remade thing, as something new and in the pre- present. And this may have started out differently for you than it's ended up, but why was using historical material important to you? You know, there's several reasons. Um, one is sort of a formal reason, and it's those used objects, they have a used patina on them. They have an aura. They have experience. They've lived. There's sort of an ineffable quality that that radiates off of them. And part of the process that I engage in is basically to try to channel that and redirect it or just embrace the power that's coming off of that object, that used piece of material or uh, sculpture or whatever it may be, and find a way of incorporating my language into the language that's already existent in the piece. In some ways, you can think of it almost like sampling. But for me, okay, so one of my favorite books is Anne Truitt's Daybook, and I have a first edition and about three other copies of it. And I only make notes in the other copies, right? So (laughs) did you have to think through, you know, not the ethics, because I don't mean it that strongly, but the... I don't know. Did you have to think through giving yourself permission to act on on historical material? Absolutely. I think ethics is the word. And it was a very sort of intense inner debate about how to do that. I mean, a little background. I think some of my earliest experiences as an artist were growing up in Los Angeles and doing graffiti. So I already sort of started with this idea of, you know, in some people's eyes, defacing public (laughs) spaces, but in my eyes, embellishing public spaces. So there was that history, and that was before I started, you know, oil painting and water painting and, you know, the longer trajectory of my uh, studio career. But I think I had to give myself permission to do that because I do have reverence for the materials that I use. I spend a lot of time with them. I learn as much as I can about them typically. And uh, it's not to impose my will on them. It's actually in some way to listen to what's already inherently there and find a way of transforming it or just in re-engaging with it. So I don't really see it as a defacement. I do see it as an embellishment or like, you know, the other word I use typically is collaboration. But I think there's also a conceptual side to that too, especially when it comes to the quilts, because there's a, a lot of nostalgia that's already wrapped up in a quilt in the first place. And they often are seen as remnants of Americana. So I find it apropos for me to <laughs> deface or rewrite directly on historical uh, nostalgic materials. 
use them almost as a palimpsest so that if you read it from now or if you read these works in the future, they sort of seem like a palimpsest of American history that has been written and rewritten by various Americans. You mentioned growing up in, in L.A. You grew up in, in Crenshaw before moving east to go to college and then to grad school. Do you remember any of the graffiti work you did back then, where it was, what it was of? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I did some work in the neighborhood on the side of <laughs> sort of like back alleys off of Jefferson, which is now a very popular neighborhood <laughs> in, in L.A., but those were the old graffiti yards. There used to be a graffiti yard on Jefferson. Then one of the major places was Pan Pacific Park, which is right by the Grove. <laughs> this was long before the Grove existed. I was say. <laughs> not, not far from LACMA for people who don't know LA. And not far from LACMA, exactly. And then also close to where I went to high school, which was uni, so on the west side. So in all these little sections, there were walls that the graph artists knew to go to. And, you know, I should say that there was the taggers who were all over the city just tagging on buses and anything they could tag on. But the muralists were going to certain train yards and certain parks and alleys where other artists would go. And that's where we would do our, you know, do our pieces. Any of it still there? No, long, long gone. <laughs> I might have a Polaroid or two about with some of the pieces, but that's about it. Art historical markers here. Um, you mentioned muralists. Were you thinking of yourself as a graffiti muralist? Your cousin, of course, who we'll talk about, I think, in a minute, was the great 20th century muralist John Biggers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it came from that. But I was also a first generation, you know, B-boy. So I grew up listening from Rapper's Delight all the way till now, listening to then rap music, now hip hop. And, you know, that was sort of, you know, that was our rock and roll. And it was the emergence of a new type of culture. And I was a practitioner of all of the arts back then. So, you know, DJing, graffiti, rapping and uh, breakdancing. So, you know, that was just sort of part and parcel of that whole lifestyle. And this is probably in my tween years, <laughs> basically. And it was uh, after a trip, my father took myself and two of my junior high school friends to, to a small independent theater somewhere in like off of Highland to see the film Wild Style when it was first shown in L.A. And, you know, we were like, oh, my God, we have to emulate the style. We have to learn how to do graffiti. It was like all about trying to do that New York B-boy thing. So here you are as as a tween in L.A. thinking about murals. Did you know John Biggers' work? Had you met John Biggers by that point? He was much older. He would have been in his early 60s about then. Yes. Actually, one of the most important moments uh, and probably the first time I realized that, you know, one can live as a practicing artist was when my cousin John Biggers had a solo exhibition at the African American Museum. This was early 80s, um, early to mid 80s. But at that particular exhibition, you know, my father is a doctor and most of his friends are doctors and lawyers and so on. But when cousin John came to town for this exhibition, my dad and all his friends and their families and all of us went to, you know, the VIP opening and so on. And it was the first time that I saw all these, you know, black men who were in these various professions actually look at somebody in the creative and entertainment, you know, entertainment slash creative industry with a certain degree of respect and reverence. And it struck me that, that somehow John Biggers was able to stimulate and inspire this group of individuals who already was stimulating and inspiring me and people of my generation. So I made a connection between that. And that was probably my first time meeting him, or at least when I was the first time I was old enough to remember meeting him. 
that experience is never, you know, uh, I've never forgotten that moment of just walking around by myself at some point that night and seeing these huge paintings and just sort of getting lost in the worlds that he created. We were talking a moment ago about your updating, deconstruction, adding to and so on of of historical materials and, and remaking them and making them your own. Was there anybody, you know, whether it was in grad school at MICA or the Art Institute or, or maybe afterward, who, who challenged you on that, who made you or encouraged you to, you know, to think about whether you wanted to do that and if you did to find and research historical or philosophical underpinnings for it? Yeah, it was a combination of, of a few things. Um, I had the pleasure of working very closely with Dr. Leslie King Hammond when I did a postback program year at MICA in Baltimore, Maryland. And prior to that, I was living in Japan and then, I, and then moved back to L.A. from Japan and considered myself an artist, but really had no idea what was going on with contemporary art and where I fit in or what I was supposed to be doing. I was just default a painter at that point because that's the only thing I really knew how to do well. When speaking with her, she's like, you have to find a way to make this work your own to let it speak of your own experience, autobiographical in some sense, but not that direct, you know, but to interject yourself through these forms and these materials and so on. And that sort of, it sparked a lot of ideas for me and it, it set me on a path of finding a way to sort of author found material and even history to take license. And we talked about ethics earlier to even take license with history. And I think that's also a product of my early education at home, because in my house, we sort of had a corollary education because there were certain things that weren't taught at the schools I was going to in terms of African-American history and you know women's history and so on. And in my house, we talked about those things. And when I went to Morehouse College, it was the same thing. I was learning sort of alternate streams of history and accomplishments in the U.S. that weren't covered in the mainstream educational systems. So... I always saw the artwork as a way of engaging some of those untold stories or under-recognized people or phenomena. One of the one of the clearest and best informed things I've ever read an artist say about history. You said to Terry Adkins in Bomb Magazine in 2011. You said history itself is a material that is constantly evolving. It's malleable, and every couple of years, things we thought of as true 50 years prior get debunked. And I like to use that as a sculptural device. You know, a lot of a lot of artists are interested in history and they use, but they use present events to address the present with an understood context of the past. But you often, darn near always, start by pulling from, from the past. Why does starting before now, if you will, why is that a move that works for you? Well, interestingly enough, I don't really see time and history as a linear process. So oh, we're going to have fun talking know. about Afrofuturism in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, we wouldn't have the present if it weren't for the past, obviously. That's sort of the only moment that we can occupy because things have either already transpired or, or are yet to transpire, yet they all influence each other. So there's this confluence, a simultaneity. So for me to draw from the past, I think the mere gesture of doing that makes it contemporary and the fact that i can't control the meaning or the experience somebody has with that that's yet to be determined that ends up being the sort of the future thread and interestingly enough i think that a successful work of art can never really be static or defined 
even in the future because its meaning is constantly changing. It is a malleable living entity. Well, speaking of, of the past, uh, about 10 years or so ago, you received a creative capital grant and you used it to explore John Biggers' life and, and work. Biggers had traveled to Africa in the course of his work in the 1950s, I think in 1957, and he went back three other times, I think. Why did you choose to go there and follow in, I mean, kind of literally follow in his footsteps, and what did you get out of that? That was my first trip to the continent. That was my first trip. Um, I went through Senegal and Ghana, and I wanted to retrace that route somehow just out of pure curiosity to see what did I learn. I didn't want to emulate his work. I didn't want to emulate his experience, but I figured that that was at least a prompt to get me there and see things on my own. And I think later that led me to go to actually go to Ethiopia and then do a few different projects in Addis Ababa and Mekele and the Danakil Depression that I did years later. And I think that was the response from that first trip to West Africa, you know, sort of saying, okay, Biggers came through here and was influenced by some of the things that he saw aesthetically and culturally here. Let me flip that now and go explore other parts because, you know, obviously <laughs> there's so much to see in Africa. But I was drawn to going to Ethiopia to do a few works. So I think, yeah, I think it was base, the basic prompt of uh, Biggers' 57 trip to Ghana. Is there anything in particular or anything specific that you got out of that trip that manifested itself in your work, whether it was in The Quilts, which started at around the same time, or, of course, the 2012 show at Mass Mocha? I think it was the use of textile and pattern, which is similar to what influenced John when he went there. But once again, you know, I was very determined not to try to emulate his work. So rather than he was very specifically attracted to fabrics that he saw uh, in the Ghanaian fabrics, I wanted to find a way to bring, you know, based off of that conversation with uh, Leslie King Hammond, to bring a more personal, you know, autobiographical experience to it. And for me, that came through the textiles, the quilts from the American South. That was grounded a little bit more in a personal history to me and indirectly to John Biggers, you know, being from the Carolinas and Texas, you know, and that brings us to an interesting point in terms of the Codex series. I mean, part of the impetus for it to be a continual work is to maybe connect myself to the research that John Biggers had already laid down in terms of pattern and textile and that usage in his paintings, and then find another venue or avenue or way to address that through the materials that I decided to use with these uh, antique quilts. One more thing about textiles and your giving yourself permission, so to speak, to, to use textiles. At, at the end of this month, on January 30th, you're going to give a lecture at MOCA in Los Angeles on the occasion of its uh, of curator Anna Katz's magnificent pattern and decoration survey. Was there anything, and perhaps any ones, within P&D who also gave you permission or pathway toward textiles and quilts? Yes, definitely. Uh, Joyce Kozloff who I spent a lot of time with when I was um, a fellow at the Skowhegan residency many, many years ago. And we had a couple of meetings and conversations. And I just really was, I was just inspired by her in general. And the subversiveness, I think, of the P&D movement, and which I think we can discuss. I mean, that we, we it's more apparent now and people are ready to talk about it on that level again. Because there was a lot of subversive things happening. There was a lot of anti-establishment things happening there. There was um, obviously the prominence of women in the movement and so on. 
I was inspired by all that. I always have looked for, let's say, cultural underdogs or even artistic underdogs. So, you know, you'll see a lot of references to op art, folk art, quote unquote, outsider art, P&D and so on. The movements that had a moment in Western contemporary history, but somehow didn't have the staying power until now being rediscovered and reengaged with more mindfulness. So I think Joyce was a big inspiration. And I felt that there was something personally very satisfying to engage with these materials that were looked down upon by the male establishment that was educating me typically <laughs> through the sculpture programs that I went to where I was learning about, you know, wood and forging and metal, you know, welding and so on. I was like, it was so fascinating to see what fiber arts could do. And there was the graphic quality and image quality in there that I liked. So I think all that came from, you know, learning more about P&D and some of those artists. As, as you say that, it occurs to me that in part because you're an Angelino or were an Angelino, you know, 83 teachers must have sent you to Melvin Edwards. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, you know, actually, there is a conversation that Mel might be actually related to John Biggers as well. I think we've all traced some degree of history back to the Carolinas. It's a conversation that I had with Mel like 20 years ago about that. So that's interesting you bring oh, it up. Oh, fam familially related. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. how about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'd have to get back and talk to him and get deeper into that conversation. But I remember the beginning of that conversation happening a while ago. Mel, Mel, Melvin Edwards was on the show maybe three or four years ago he was he was great i i i don't know i love those I, I love a lot of that work and he's never had the big new york or la show which is uh obscene 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 i mean the nasher show like five years ago is one of the best sculpture shows i've ever seen well you know that's interesting that you bring that up because as we were talking about john biggers and the show i did at mass mocha the cartographer's conundrum part of my you know there's a personal interest in john biggers of course but I always thought that if I were able to show my work in the large format in large venues to find a way to bring his work into the conversation as well. You know, and as you mentioned, that show was done in 2012 and that was sort of before the recent rush on, you know, older senior African-American artists. And I was terrified that this man and his work may go unrecognized in perpetuity. So I wanted to find a way to, you know, start that conversation and bring him back into, you know, the conversation. Even with that uh, interview with Terry Atkins, it was still sort of that process, it was always giving respect to the generations before us. I'm so glad so many artists of my generation have also done that with um, some of the elder artists, because it's important. You know, part of that rewriting of history is also presenting those unrecognized people. I mean, it's always been my mission aesthetically and personally. Yeah, and it's harder. It's hardest with with muralists who you know, because more than any other historical discipline, art history writes is you know is 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 written and spread through exhibitions. I mean, Aaron Douglas is Titanic, and while there have been lots of shows over the years, you know, the greatest, biggest work can't move, can't you know, can't move. So we've talked about the origins of a lot of things that have gone into your your quilts one of one of the great things about the quilts is that they 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 take an historical thing and you have brought a language that you've added to it a language of objects or symbols or stuff that you use in all kinds of mediums media 
And I wanted to talk about some of those things that recur in the work and why. Maybe starting with Quilt 15, Harmonics 2 from 2012. It's the quilt up now at the Nasher. And it has a bunch, it has within it a bunch of the stuff that you have used for many years. One of them is the kind of dripping clouds at the bottom of the quilt. You have made sculptural clouds, if you will. You you, you have made standalone clouds as objects, um, such as Cumulus Number 1 from 2013. Um, why do clouds interest you? Uh, multiple reasons. That's why they reoccur. It's, it's not one specific reading, but the first would be back to that growing up doing graffiti. Clouds were one of the effects that most early graffiti artists start to to use and it you know obviously comes directly from the comic book tradition so there's very inter various interpretations of clouds and you can even make a cloud a signature form depending on how you how you uh, depict it so uh, that was the first source but in the early 90s i moved to japan and i lived in nagoya japan for three years and while i was there i got really deep into Buddhism. I, in fact, lived around a block and a half from a Buddhist temple, and I would walk through it several times a week to get home and spend time looking at different, you know, mandalas and tankas and diagrams and so on. And there were the reoccurring images and motifs there of clouds, also waves, but clouds in, in particular. And, you know, that was a different quality, a different depiction of the cloud. And then the physical objects that I made were, you know, out of raw cotton. So, of course, there was all the political heft of using raw cotton to make clouds so lofty and beautiful, but with such uh, with material that has so much history and gravitas. But in that particular quilt, yeah, the clouds are at the bottom and that's sort of it's composed very much the way I was reading the mandalas at the time. So it sort of creates the heavens and then the main centerpiece of, 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 of the work itself is that sort of gold starish type of diagram, which is actually a depiction of a perfect fifth, the harmonies of a perfect fifth that's done by, I'm forgetting what the name of the, uh, the process of how to make a, a graphic out of pitch. There's this, you know, sonogram or some way to depict graphically what's happening in terms of vibrations and pitch. And this diagram comes about when you hit a harmonic fifth. It's a form that recurs in a lot of the quilts, especially in this time, in the early 2010s. This quilt in particular has embedded within it a grid. There are a number of riffs on the grid within your quilt, such as in Hat and Beard from 2016. The grid is a form with a very specific art history, one that is probably more recent than a lot of people think of. I mean, as late as the 19, you know, right around 78, 79, 80, Rosalind Krauss is writing that the grid exists in 20th century art, which is amazing because it exists nowhere in art ever before that, which is, of course, preposterous. As you were working through quilts in which there are lots of, you know, 18th or 19th century gridded forms, particularly interested in addressing or deconstructing the grid. Yeah, actually, it, it's so it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh, reference to that history and, once again, the gravitas and painting of the grid. And I often sort of say that I have a non-hierarchical approach to how I make these, and I mean that in the sense that I do not hold the grid as sacred. You know, so you know, sometimes I will adhere to the grid. Sometimes I'll, I'll cut through the grid. Sometimes I put, you know, organic, like Quilt 15, organic forms on top, superimposed on top of the grid, so the grid becomes a backdrop. And then in other pieces, I've woven, 
my imagery through the grid. So creating you know depth and perspective through it. So it's it's a tool. Sometimes I pay attention to it. Sometimes I ignore it. And sometimes I battle against it. There are stars in a lot of quilts, as well as in Constellation, Stranger Fruits, a 29 commission you made from Harvard that we'll talk about in a moment. It's one read of stars is they're both there in the American flag, and they were useful for, for guidance and navigation on land and by sea, with all of the historical implications thereof for the African diaspora. Why were you interested in stars, and why did you add them in different forms, LEDs in the Harvard piece, in, in, in many kinds of works? Well, it's partly the two references that you've already mentioned, but also, uh, once again, back to that time in Japan and uh, you know, paying a lot of attention to mandalas and, and references to celestial bodies and psychological, mental, intellectual transcendence. So, you know, once again, back to Quilt 15, is that you have the main focal point above the clouds. All these things are happening in the heavens. And I grew up listening to P-Funk and Earth, Wind and & Fire and John Coltrane and Alice Coltrane, who were always referencing cosmic music and this idea of being, you know, the body being a celestial body, that we too are stars. So that imagery comes in and it's also goes back to graffiti. There's myriad uh, reasons that the star keeps coming up. So, yeah. That you and graffiti is, is under addressed in the art historical literature. Yeah, it, I did. It's sort of funny. Yeah, no, it's such a big thing, too. And when I was teaching, I always was a champion of all these painters that would have, I call it sort of a post-graffiti aesthetic. You know, I can tell who grew up using airbrushes and spray paint and markers. I can just tell. There's a certain type of mark they make and a certain type of approach they have. And, you know, there was a lot of reluctance in the academy to address or even engage people on that. It's some for some reason, a lot of uh, instructors didn't find validity in that as an art form. And I find it extremely important. And there's so many artists that are, you know, digging into that image bank right now. Also related to the stars, I created several pieces that used glass mirrors that were cut into star shapes and placed them on the floor and then shone light directly onto those mirrors and the reflections then span across the walls and ceiling of a venue. That's one of the elements that was also part of my cartographer's conundrum installation at Mass Mocha. So, you know, the stars are sometimes graphically represented and sometimes they're literally physical objects. So, uh, yeah, I think the stars are something that are sort of here to stay. And <laughs> I like them because they're a little kitsch and a little bit coy, but at the same time, they can really add something to the piece once you put some earnesty into them. <laughs> yeah, and, and the the historical references in stars, particularly in the American context and tradition, is enormous. And in quilt imagery, too. The star is a major, a major form that appears in the center of several quilts. There is a move you do in a lot of quilts, especially in the early ones, where there is a lines shooting out from a near single point ending in circles or ovals. What is that form from and why do you like it? One of the early interests in the quilts was to exploit the idea of depth and perspective. I always feel that quilt patterns are hinting with it, but they don't always go all the way through to pushing it to trompe l'oeil. So when I started painting and, you know, mark making directly on them, I started to do that in very simplistic ways. So creating these sort of like nimbus or nimbi 
that are coming from a one-point perspective from the center and expanding outwards as a way of creating some sense of perspective. And I think that's even continuous now. I don't really use that those lines as much, but I am still interested in perspective. And that's, you know, you've probably seen some of the three-dimensional quilts that I've been doing where they're on wooden and metal armatures and create, you know, literal depth and perspective. So it's still an interest, but I was you know, doing it more with Trump Lloyd before. That was, in fact, the next question. In 2016 uh, is when that, that three-dimensional form begins to come into the quilted works. Are there other reasons that you wanted to extend quilts into into space? Yeah, well, the first was perspective and depth. But the second was also to try to make them into literal physical objects and find a way to sculpt with that same imagery, to take them off the wall and make them, you know, standalone, freestanding or illusionistic wall pieces. The form of his, of remaking of historical objects has taken flight in your practice most in quilts of course you've made dozens probably scores of quilts but i'm also fascinated by uh, a piece you made called eclipse it's an african sculpture i think perhaps your reuben that is is cut in half that you cut in half and presented uh, on plinths at different heights you know in maybe the last 10 or 15 years a number of of artists your age and especially younger I'm thinking of like John Edmonds or Matthew Angelo Harrison, to name just two, have been using African sculpture as either actual African sculpture or, or references to it as, as a point of, of address. Why, when you made Eclipse, was bringing African sculpture into your oeuvre something that uh, was attracted to you? And how far back does your, did your interest go? Yeah, that's a complicated question because there's so many layers of uh, my personal engagement with, you know, African figurative sculpture and masks and so on. I started collecting them personally probably a good 20, 25 years ago, but never really incorporated them into my work. They were usually either in my home or my studio just as inspirations, something to look at to see forms. But at that point when I made Eclipse, I was sort of pushing myself to get out of some safe, comfortable areas and themes. And one of them was really basic, is just to take one of these objects that I had revered for so long and then to literally cut it or or do, for lack of a better word, violence, do something disruptive to it, and then represent that. So when I did that, I was doing a phase of works. Some were done with uh, boom boxes, some were done with African figures, where I was just finding one gesture. I was allowing myself only one gesture and trying to get the maximum impact from that one gesture. So prior to doing the um, Eclipse piece, I did a piece called The Bridge is Over, where I took a boom box and I melted it from one point so that it you know, sort of fell down on itself and melted in on itself and created a beautiful, in my impression, a beautiful disruptive form. And then the gesture I did, the piece I did after that immediately was Eclipse, where I took this one particular African sculpture and I made one very precise cut straight down the middle and displayed it on two different heights, as you said. But there was also an, an illusionistic thing that was happening with that piece. If you see it from one side, it really looks like the entire figure is actually there. And then when you get right around the edge, you realize that there's this very, very abrupt, hard, stark, flat stop. And... To me, there was this optical thing that was happening, 
but there was also a conceptual thing happening because also I found myself and many people of my generation sort of, you know, we have created our own histories because of lack of having true historical record of our migration from various points in Africa to the U.S. or South America or throughout the diaspora. So we've idolized and mythologized some of these pieces and our connection to Africa. And I wanted to also challenge that within myself. And one way to do that is symbolically through these objects. So correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not an expert on African sculpture. But my understanding of the history of form, such as the one you used in Eclipse, is that historically they were adorned uh, with feathers or, or other objects. And it, it was only in their westernization that they came to be photographed or otherwise presented as, as only wood. Am I, am I right there? Yes, yeah, that's my understanding of it as well, but I find that to be fascinating. So why did you choose to use slash present Eclipse in the way Westerners, mostly Europeans and later Americans, chose to present and, and air quotes, use African sculpture and not in the way, say, for example, they were traditionally used? Well, I think for me, you know, in part of challenging my sort of mythologizing my own personal connection to Africa, I was wanting to challenge our perception of the history of African objects as well and metaphorically challenge our understanding of art history. The other side that I didn't mention before is that, and this goes back to uh, an art historical mythology, maybe, or legend, that the modernists, you know, the Picassos and, and Matisses were so influenced by African objects and there was this fervor for finding Africana in Europe around the turn of the uh, 20th century and that those objects weren't true representations of the objects in their original presentation. And it's interesting that that would be the impetus for the modernists to make so much work, but it's not really a true origin piece. So why not take what is now considered to be, it's now canonical African work, but it's not original African work. So then to take that and disrupt it as well is to disrupt the history and to disrupt that trajectory. But in, you know, and I think I'm still very interested in that phenomenon because there is the corollary of that when it comes to Western and Greco-Roman sculpture as well. And how we, you know, how we perceive these monochromatic marble white sculptures as, you know, the hallmark of the height of Western canonical sculpture. But in fact, those were not always stark monochromatic white, but polychromatic and painted with various pigments that have worn off over years and through weathering and changes of emperors who might have lopped off a head and scraped down the paints just so they can have, you know, this alabaster white object. So that, too, is a mythologized impression of what those works were originally. So in some since you have this European whitewashing of the marbles and then you have a European blackwashing of the African pieces. And the next part of that story is now you have Africans realizing that there's a market for these denuded and monochromatic black and brown wooden pieces with no adornment. So they, in fact, start making it for the tourist industry. So to me, that ends up being sort of the first example, one of the early examples of postmodernism, you know, and this is before Duchamp is this idea of appropriating 
and reappropriating for market. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of why I, I, I specifically referenced Matthew Angelo Harrison because he uses 3D printing to remake those forms, you know, one more time, <laughs> which I which I think is really interesting. So a bunch of times as we've talked about history, you have referenced giving voice to histories that were intentionally erased or were otherwise necessarily silent, such as wayfinding on the Underground Railroad. I, I keep hearing, even though I don't know that we've used the word maybe more than once, ideas informed by Afrofuturism in 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 how you talk and in work work that you you make. I think that um, you were an undergrad when Mark Derry coined the term Afrofuturism, when there was kind of an explosion in the literature around that word. Of course, the thing had sort of existed nebulously, but untermed, if you will, since the 1950s. And I was wondering if you remember when you first started consciously engaging the word and the philosophical ideas that were born from and spun out of the word Afrofuturism. Derry coined it in 1993, by the way. Right. I think I was working with that type of an aesthetic and mindset from the late 90s. So after undergrad. After undergrad, yes. But, you know, it's once again, I think it was the way I was already thinking. I was bought up thinking that way. You know, as I mentioned, I grew up listening to Alice Coltrane and, you know, P-Funk. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and Jimi Hendrix. Nearly you know. there at the beginning with PFI. Yeah. And I actually consider John Biggers to be a proto Afrofuturist when it comes down to it, because he was looking at sacred geometry in the pattern work and textiles that he was using. And that was a way of sort of astral projecting his artwork. So I think that impetus was already there. I think I finally got hip to the phrase probably in the early 2000s, maybe 1999, 2000, 2001, around that time. And I used it a bit then because it was still it was not in print yet. It was still just sort of an idea that people were talking about for like sort of the underground conoscenti of African diasporic ideas. And I personally stopped using the word as soon as it started to. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's, that's the most super popularized. (laughs) That's the most former graffiti artist move ever. You know, <laughs> so uh, but but, you know, as a mindset, I think, you know, I, I just I'm a little reluctant to use the phrase because I think it would ultimately it will limit what Afrofuturism can do and what it is actually about. And I think it's a very expansive concept and that the word cannot shoulder the expansiveness of the concept itself. So I do think that it's still in my work. And but there's all kinds of other things that are floating in there as well. But I, I look at it, you know, less than an aesthetic or philosophical concept, but more as a mindset. And part of that mindset goes back to the recurring thing we've been having is that history is malleable and the history you were taught is not necessarily what it was. Afrofuturism does allow for that. It takes that for granted that that's you know, unknown entity, that what has been written has not is not necessarily what transpired. Yeah. Afrofuturism goes a step beyond revisionism, which is I, I, surely part of why it's so exciting to artists working visually. I want to close by, by talking about trees uh, and your use of trees a little bit. The go to text on, on trees in your work is, of course, Kelly Jones's address of your work and her great book, South of Pico. You've made a lot of work about trees in many media from 2005's Cheshire, which uh, has the minstrelsy grin you've used in lots of work, including on quilts hanging from a tree, 2007's Blossom, which is now at the Brooklyn Museum, Constellation Stranger Fruits, the 2009 work 
we talked about earlier that you made is a commission from Harvard, which includes on it a quilt. And Afropic, a 2005 woodcut on, on paper, which recalls both the comb form and the roots of a tree. Within the history of white racism, of course, trees are a specific place and site. They were the sites of lynchings. Was that your entree to trees and your reason for using them? or? Well, actually, I think it's more looking at the duplicity or multiple readings that the tree has. And it's funny that you mentioned the Cheshire piece and referred to it as the grand of minstrelsy. But as the name implies, is, is really the Cheshire cat. Yeah, going back to Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, yeah, going back to Alice in Wonderland. So the first time I showed that Cheshire grin hanging from a tree, it literally was in the Black Forest in Germany where I was doing a residency and did a commission piece there. So it was called Cheshire, and everyone took it as it was. Oh, that's a grin, the Cheshire grin that disappears and reappears you know, in this tree out here in this forest. But then when I showed that piece, down south, like let's say in Virginia, then it becomes blackface minstrelsy. And the tree operates the same way. As you're saying, sort of in American history, the tree can seem like it means strictly the place of where lynching took place. But for me, that's also where the Buddha finds enlightenment. So there is this contradictory meaning and symbolism that is included with the tree. And that's just two. And I mean, there's myriad symbols from every culture about the tree. But one that I was particularly fascinated by was that it sort of is the axis mundi, that it's based in the center, you know, coming from the earth and then has its time, you know, its physical presence on the earth, in the world where we exist, on the ground, coming through the ground where we walk and live, and then reaching up into the heavens where we hopefully will ascend at some point. So that it itself is the axis mundi. And so many different readings can be put onto it. And that's how it became the centerpiece for Blossom. So, you know, Blossom has a piano. It looks like the tree is bursting through a piano. And when you walk closer to the piece, the piano starts to play uh, my own version of Billie Holiday and Abe Mirapool's Strange Fruit. And that piece, Blossom, was inspired by, you know, the Gina Six incident in Louisiana, without getting too deep into that, but, you know, which was a modern day racial conflagration that happened in Louisiana. I'm also looking at it as the piano stands in for a body being lynched, but it also stands for a body that is emerging out of ignorance, that much like the Buddha is becoming enlightened by the presence of the tree and its relationship to the tree. And, and the impossibility of silencing black cultural forms. One of the reasons I ask about trees is because in 19th century America, in mid-19th century America, especially antebellum America, but, but during the Civil War too, of course, Trees were a, a symbol and metaphor for American republicanism, its strength and its promise, and hopefully Americans hoped, white Americans hoped, its perpetuity. You know, we see that in all kinds of art and poetry, including in, for example, Carlton Watkins' great 1861 Grizzly Giant, which arrived in the East as the Union was at its most perilous moment. And then, of course, in the uh, Reconstruction era, when and, and afterward, when trees become a site of lynching, we have whites, mostly Southerners, using their symbol for republicanism, republicanism as the specific site they chose to use to deny the full promise of republicanism to black people. They, they, they turned it into a tool of, of you know, they made the symbol into a tool of violence. 
This is all a long way of asking if that particular history of trees, its migration from uh, symbol and metaphor for republicanism to site of violence, was one of particular interest to you. It wasn't specifically the republicanism. It was more, once again, that this is sort of an elemental uh, object of promise and evolution and growth and longevity, perpetuity, as you mentioned, and that it, it sees the best and the worst of humankind. The tree literally sees and watches it and sometimes experiences it as, you know, we go into deforestation and all the things that have occurred since industrialism, fire, and so on. Yet they still remain, yet they still grow, yet they will out-age us and most things that we have knowledge of. So there is the potential for such greatness, but at the same time, they can be used as, you know, weapons, as lynching posts, and so on. So they themselves have a dichotomous presence in our sort of human folklore. And, you know, it's an elemental, it's, it's an elemental reference. So for me to use that in either as an object in a sculpture or an installation or even depicting that on a quilt or so on is referencing that sort of the potential of humankind for good and evil that there's, you know, always trying to find strikes some balance. I'm not so idealistic to think that it always goes one way or the other, but in fact, we have to sort of embrace our duality. Sanford Biggers, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Nancy Lupo, Scripts for the Pageant, at its downtown location through March 15, 2020. For her first solo museum exhibition, Los Angeles-based artist Nancy Lupo stages a conversation between the architecture of MCASD Downtown's Feral Gallery and a new sculpture, drawing attention to our presence among everyday objects, materials, and spaces that are often overlooked, but that deeply affect our understanding of the world. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next up, Michelle Angela Ortiz, who joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of When Home Won't Let You Stay, Migration Through Contemporary Art. It's at the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston. It was curated by Ruth Erickson and Ava Raspini, and it'll be on view in Boston through January 26th, at which point it will travel to the Minneapolis Institute of Art and the Cantor Art Center at Stanford University. The Very Good Exhibition Catalog was published by the ICA in association with Yale University Press. You can get it on Amazon for $37. Ortiz is a Philadelphia-based artist whose artworks, often made in and for public sites, activate, embolden, and advocate for the underrepresented. In 2018, she was a fellow at the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage, and she was a Rauschenberg Foundation Artist as Activist Fellow. Michelle Angela Ortiz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Let's start with Anna, an undocumented immigrant who was detained at the Berks County Family Residential Center in eastern Pennsylvania, which is a prison that has held children as young as two weeks old. Uh, she is the person behind the words that are up now at the ICA in Boston, and her words have also been in, in other public works you've made. How did you come to know of her and to know her? Anna, actually, this, this piece is the only piece that uh, showcases Anna's wow. words. So We Are Human Beings is part of a larger project, which is called Familias Separadas, which 
stands for Separated Families. It's a project that I created in 2013 at the rise of deportations in our country. And Familias Separadas really is about utilizing public art as a way to amplify the stories of families that are directly impacted by detention and deportations. Uh, the first phase was in Philadelphia, which is where the original iteration of Where Human Beings was made. And uh, the second phase was focused on the state of Pennsylvania, on the mothers, specifically focusing on four stories of mothers that were also detained at Berks. The Berks County Residential Center is an actual family prison for immigrant families. These are families that have crossed the borders seeking their legal right for asylum and then are processed and then detained first in detention centers. There are two other family prisons besides Burke. So there are three family prisons in the United States. The other two are in Texas. And we have one here in the Northeast area, which is the Burke's family prison located uh, about an hour and 45 minutes from Philadelphia, where's where it is where I'm based. And so the work that was created in that first phase, which includes the We Are Human Beings piece now shown at the ICA Boston, really came from a series of interviews that I was conducting throughout Philadelphia. And during that time, I was working with a immigrant rights organization called Juntos, which still exists, and they're based here in Philadelphia. Juntos at the time had been working, were, they were already working on the Shutdown Burks campaign. And one of the lead organizers, Jasmine Rivera, who was employed at Juntos at the time, and now she's no longer there, but she continues to be at the forefront of pushing uh, the campaign through the Shutdown Burks Coalition, which is a coalition of organizers, activists, legal advocates, lawyers that have been fighting for the past five years to shut down this family prison in the state of Pennsylvania. So it was through my work with Juntos that they had conducted an interview specifically with Ana. Ana was detained there. She's originally from Guatemala. She was detained there with her daughter. And the story around Ana is that at three o'clock in the morning, ICE agents came and grabbed her and her daughter and deported her to Guatemala without an actual legal court order. And so when the lawyers found out that she was deported to Guatemala with very short notice to take any type of legal action or to stop the deportation, the lawyers contacted the judge who had said to ICE and and specifically this facility at Berks that they could not deport her without a court order signed by the judge. So in this very rare case around Anna, this judge basically said to ICE, you need to buy a plane ticket to these to this mother and child, Anna and her daughter, and have them come back to Pennsylvania and have them fight against their deportation case in in a just and legal way in in Pennsylvania. So this was a huge, you know, action on the side of the judge because this hasn't happened this didn't happen before, hasn't happened before. So Anna and her daughter were able to return back to Pennsylvania and I had actually met her briefly and her daughter 
standing across from the Burks family prison at one of the vigils and actions uh, led by the Shutdown Burks Coalition to really advocate for the families inside. And it was at this action that Anna and her daughter spoke about the injustice, injustices that they had endured during their time that they were in prison. It was also during this time where the mothers, there were 14 mothers inside. Anna was targeted because she was one of the women that really was at the forefront of fighting for her freedom and her daughter and organizing. So the words the words of Anna were originally placed on October 12, 2015 in front of the Immigration Customs Enforcement Building here in Philadelphia. We had about I helped facilitate the installation, you know, I created the stencils, I invited community members to be a part of that process to help me cut the stencils out and actually place and install them in front of this building, specifically the exit point where loved ones are then transported from this ice building, which is the first the first step of, of the tension, and then moved to prisons and jails to continue to fight against their deportation. So it was very pow- it was a very powerful evening as we laid down these letters and words of Anna and ICE agents were looking down on us as, you know, families who would usually not even step foot near this building because it represents so much fear and they run the risk of being detained, you know, were basically fearless uh, laying down these words with me and Anna's words. Sometimes in your work, you use text as in as in the piece we've been discussing. And sometimes you use images such as in the Harrisburg installations of Familia Separata or in Eris Mitoto, which you installed outside Philly's City Hall in 2015. What does each strategy offer and why do you go back and forth between them? Yeah, I mean, I I feel that, you know, text and, and just sometimes an image really comes by from conversation. And so I feel that, you know, even Eres Mi Todo, I, I felt that it was really necessary to include an image in that piece in the Compass Rose let me let me jump in for just a second. The Compass Rose is the larger piece in which the the mother and child image is embedded. Yes. In the case of Eres Mi Todo, which is in the a city hall courtyard where, which is where it was installed. It was installed within a permanent work of art which is called The Compass Rose by Edmund Bacon. And that particular painted compass in the middle of our city marks the center of our city. And Eres Mi Todo really comes from that title, which translates to You Are My Everything, comes from the many letters that Jose had written to his wife, Maria, who's featured in the piece with her daughter. And so, you know, when I think about text and image, you know, sometimes the text and what I read or the conversations that I have influences what the actual image is going to be. Or sometimes I just feel that the words themselves can stand alone. You know, an image is not needed for that. And so in the case of the, uh, you know, for we are human beings, I felt that the phrase itself was so incredibly powerful and how we did the work, right? So that's the other part of it is that it wasn't just the words, it was also how the work was made that really brings the piece 
in its like complete self, right? It, it, it kind of completes it all in terms of the action of actually making the piece and installing it. And then what happened, you know, it, it was there, it was installed in front of the ice building, and then it had to be power washed away. And I even have images of, of the of these words kind of being erased. So as you were describing, Eros Mitoto is a is a mother and child, chose a mother and child. And there is an art historical precedent, both for the mother and child motif, but specifically in the context of emigration, the story in the Bible and Matthew about Mary, Jesus and Joseph fleeing Herod's massacre of the innocents on the flight into Egypt. Are you interested in that connection? Do you hope people who, who see the work will make it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that what's interesting in terms of that connection of mother and child, when people when we think about detention and deportation, I think people just think of sometimes just that one particular person. Right. And the reality is that it and, and this is just really in terms of the whole system of mass incarceration. So I'm not even just talking about immigrant detention, but specifically just our justice system. Right. When we think about, well, this one person is being detained and for this amount of time, it trickles into the family. So it's it's very difficult to separate family and the presence of children or loved ones within this conversation. Right. And it's also very easy to, again, uh, criminalize people who have made the decision to cross, to leave, to sacrifice their lives and the lives of their children in in making that journey. And so I think that there are those connections. I, I started this exploring the series of mother and child during my time at the Rauschenberg residency this past August. And it was I was there actually at the residency with my five year old. So <laughs> so it's really just for me, the impact that this will have on children that, again, have mixed statuses, some are undocumented, some are citizens. You know, the the reality is, is that uh, this trauma of separation, this this impact that this will have on this future citizen, right, and and how they view the world and the decisions that they make, you know, they're influenced by these actions that are happening. You know, I feel that it's necessary to present that and to talk about that. So so the series that I started working on in Rauschenberg was really a take on kind of like the these traditional compositions that Mary Cassatt, who has a connection to Philly, did in, in that time of just these really uh, warm images of mother and child and very kind of intimate scenes and and that connection. And so it was really starting, I started a few paintings around utilizing those very same compositions, painting them on aluminum uh, or this, this metal sheet. So having like kind of the coldness of that aluminum, which, you know, can represent so many things, you know, and in this case, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of use of cages, a lot of use of emergency blankets and some of these like public art installations that are really around creating that shock value that I feel that is necessary for people to wake up. But I think in contrast to that, we also, what I have been trying to do is really present in the midst of all of this that is happening, there are still families like Maria's family, like many of the mothers at Burke's, 
that in the midst of these systems that are trying to strip them away of their humanity, these mothers and fathers are still finding moments to show love and security and safety to their child, whether it's through a hug, a kiss, through reassuring words, through a song. And I feel that that is really important to also present when we're talking about this particular issue, because it is very, I think for me as an artist, it's about being aware of how not just traumatizing this has been for the families, but also how these images of cages and these images of even in social media, um, you know, the young Guatemalan boy who just died in, you know, during in the detention center, you know, how those images are shown very easily, you know, as as like, oh, look at what's been happening. And I think, again, if people haven't woken up already, it's I don't know. I don't know what else needs to happen for them to wake up and see that this is an issue and that we need to take action. But it's also like, how are we honoring the sacredness of this human being that's lost their life? Right. And then also, how are we being aware that this image is triggering uh, this trauma that families that maybe have survived these situations, right, have formerly been detained or have crossed that river, have been in those very same situations and they survived by seeing these images, by seeing, you know, even the cages, the security blankets, the that's uh, children in, in these kind of uh, <laughs> installations, right? Again, it's it's who it is that you're talking to, right? And I think for the people who are directly impacted by this issue, uh, those images can be very, can be triggering their trauma. And so how are we as artists presenting and being mindful of how we're sharing out the messages? I don't, I don't think that the, the shock value or just trying to get people to wake up shouldn't stop. I think that it's, it is necessary, but we also need to balance it with images of power and resilience and love and dedication that these families have for each other, right? And so for me, just playing with this idea of mother and child, for example, and still working through the series of, of paintings and drawings, um, it's really about within the environment or like a faded image of a mother, what's still intact is the connection between that child and that mother. And so I feel that there's, there is this moment of just honoring that and presenting that. And also in, in a sense, I feel that's where hope and love really exists. And, and, and I think that it gets lost in the conversation. You know, it's a little unusual, sadly, for artists to believe that their work can have an impact on the world outside art, that their, that their work can impact the body politic. What led you to have belief in the idea or faith in the idea that art can have a, a broad impact outside of art? I see art being much more than something beautiful to look at or <laughs> really presenting it in in galleries or museums or having an exhibition, right? It's because I think that my experience with art is not coming from that world, right? I, The first time I stepped into a, a museum or, or felt comfortable in stepping into a museum was when I, when I was an art student. Prior to that, what I tell people is that it's really, for me, 
my foundation didn't begin the moment that I said, oh, I'm going to study art, <laughs> right? My foundation really comes from what I saw as a child. And so I I still live on my same block where I grew up on. I grew up in and, and I'm right by the 9th Street uh, Market, which is known as the Italian Market. Although there's many more families that are just Italian that have contributed really to the market itself. It is a market of immigrants. Again, like I mentioned, I'm a child of immigrants. My mother's from Colombia. My father's uh, Puerto Rican. They came here as many other, just the same as many other people looking for opportunities because they didn't have opportunities available for them in their home countries. And the market became really a place where it was very familiar, right? My mother um, is originally from Mompos, which is in the state of Cartagena and one of the main vein or the river that fall, that goes through Colombia, which is the Rio Magdalena, was one of the main importing and exporting places in my mother's hometown, uh, which was the market. And so what I found really, what I find really interesting in terms of my own upbringing is that although I fortunately, because of my parents, didn't have to experience the extreme poverty that they had to endure, that of which some of my family members are still living in poverty, right? That it was through them immigrating and um, having this opportunity to be able to build a life for us. It, It just brings a different perspective for me, right? For me, you know, the market is one very beautiful place beyond than just people are like, oh yeah, Rocky ran down the Ninth Street Market, part of the Rocky movie. And that's people's association with it. Yeah. So, but the market really is a place where, you know, you see people who are really thriving and surviving. When I think about galleries and museums, I enter into those space into those spaces very cautiously. Because I know that I'm working within a framework that is not necessarily always complementary to what I grew up with (laughs) and what my experience is. But I also feel that it's an opportunity to create a bridge and to say, to present a different perspective. And for example, the piece at the ICA was a really big step in, it was a really big step in the sense of how does we are human beings, this piece that was created with community, presented in a specific location in front of the ice building at that time, right? How does that then translate into these white walls, right? Who is seeing it? Who's experiencing it? What can be the the other meaning of this piece, this next iteration of this work? And I feel that, you know, what when I had that conversation with Ava Rispini, who was one of the curators for the show, I was really relieved to be able to have an honest conversation about my concerns of how this work would translate into a space like the ICA Boston. And for her to be, you know, take the time to really have that conversation with me and and just really be open to you know, what those concerns were and how I would want the work to be shown and displayed and its significance of its location, which I was very pleased that we were able to really determine the space to be at the Founders Hall Gallery, which faces, it faces across the river and 
and it's directly across, well, the ICA has been built directly across from where the original immigration port uh, was created in East Boston, where many families were also processed and and held, detained, <laughs> until they were they were considered worthy enough to go into back into communities in East Boston and and be integrated. And so it it has it makes sense, but it for me it's just it's an interesting. It's been a really beautiful learning moment to just feel like, okay, how does this work translate in these spaces that, again, as I mentioned, I'm not necessarily fully comfortable in, and I'm okay with not being fully comfortable in it. But I think it's also understanding the complexity of these spaces, right, of galleries and museums in particular. For me, it's challenging when how people place value on artwork. And I think that that has been my challenge with galleries and museums, because for me, the value of a piece of work can be on a sidewalk and on these white walls, right? And there is nothing, there isn't, one thing doesn't kind of over overrun the other. They're, they're both valuable in these spaces. I'm just, you know, really interesting in continuing to reinforce that bridge. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com of how the work at the ICA Boston looks out on on Boston Harbor, just, just below where the Charles and Mystic enter the harbor. Michelle Angela Ortiz, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.